Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 239, Urban Archipelago, an environmental history of the Boston Harbor Islands with Dr. Pavla Shimkova. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Pavla Shimkova, author of a terrific new book about the Boston Harbor Islands. Longtime listeners will know that I'm a huge fan of the Harbor Islands. Urban Archipelago explores how the city of Boston transformed the islands on its doorstep time and time and time again as the city's needs shifted over the centuries. From a valuable site for farming, to a worthless dumping ground for all of Boston's problems, to a wilderness of history and romance, to an urban park, these many transformations reflect a changing city. Pavla and I will discuss how Boston initially embraced the islands, later turned its back on the harbor, and more recently still, has embraced them both again. You'll hear us argue about the 1960s plan to hold a Bicentennial Expo on the harbor, and the role of storyteller Edward Rose Snow in promoting the harbor islands to a new generation. And you'll hear us agree about the beauty and importance of this urban asset. But before we talk about the Boston Harbor Islands, I'd like to just pause and thank Lisa W., our latest Patreon sponsor. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to Lisa B. from NYC, a longtime sponsor who's working hard to share the black history of the Lower East Side with their neighbors, and who I recently had the opportunity to meet in person for the first time. Both Lisas, and listeners like them, make Hub History possible by giving $2, $5, or even $10 a month to cover the expenses involved in making the show. Their support allows us to purchase access to research databases, pay for audio processing tools to clean up how I and our guests sound, and get access to web hosting and security and podcast media hosting to deliver the show to you, the listener. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and existing sponsors. Dr. Pavla Shimkova is a historian and postdoctoral researcher at the Rachel Carson Center at the University of Munich. The Carson Center is an interdisciplinary school focusing on the environmental humanities, from history to geography to anthropology to literary criticism, drawing fellows from around the world. In the past, she's researched the environmental history of Bohemia, and her current project investigates the transnational environmental history of the Bavarian Forest. Today, however, she's joining me to talk about one of my favorite places, the Boston Harbor Islands. Her book, Urban Archipelago, an environmental history of the Boston Harbor Islands, follows the transformation of those islands from the time of colonization, through its use as a dumping ground in the 19th century, to a series of 20th century reinventions that left Boston with a national park on its doorstep. Pavla joins me now from Germany. Pavla, welcome to the show. I have to say I'm really excited for our conversation today. I I love the Boston Harbor Islands. Uh, Pedix Island is one of my favorite summertime destinations with my family. So when UMass Press asked if I'd like to take a look at your new book, I just jumped at the chance, said yes immediately. And before I I get into the details of the book, I just like to ask, reading your your bio, it sounds like you've studied in, in both Germany and, and the Czech Republic. So how did you wind up with the Boston Harbor Islands as a topic for your research? I guess that's a fair question. You're perfectly right. I have no personal ties to Boston. As you can tell by my name and my accent, I'm not even from the United States. 
at the beginning was really simple curiosity because I majored in American studies, American history. And I came to Boston first in 2015, I think, uh, for an entirely different project. Then I began reading these, these newspaper stories about Spectacle Island, which at that time, 10 years uh, prior, has been, had this tremendous makeover from a landfill into a park. And I became, I became intrigued, like, because there was so, there was so much to unravel, really. Why would anyone think that it's a good idea to put a landfill on an island in the first place? Right. And there was so much money invested to, to convert it into a park. There was millions of dollars. So it must be, it must be important. And also, as I, as I started looking into this, there were hundreds and hundreds of articles about this. So I was wondering, why does everyone care so much? How is this place so important? Well, you, you also say early in the book that Spectacle Island in particular is a good stand-in for all of the harbor islands. What, what makes you think it's such a good sort of a representative example of the islands? Well, because in my view, it, uh, it really captures the, the arc of development that uh, in one way or another, uh, all the islands went through. The transformation of Spectacle is very much in your face. You may think that the other islands have been much less affected or look pristine and haven't been changed so much, but in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find just just one island in the harbor that hasn't been changed by, by the influence of Boston. So Spectacle is basically a place where, where you can observe this development in a condensed form, so to say, that, that went through... Most of the of the historical developments have affected the islands over time, so so I thought it was a, it was a good place to delve deep into to capture the wide variety of what's been happening on the islands for the past four hundred years. Coming from a place of of ignorance, I guess I, I only really study Boston. Have we transformed our natural landscape here, the islands and the the surrounding land, more than other cities? Was this a, a unique case, or is this representative of other cities around the world? As far as the Hub Islands are concerned, then Boston's fairly typical, in fact. Along the coast of North America, there's, there's many examples of, of, of cities that have treated their Hub Islands in much the same way as Boston did. Uh, a case in point here is, is New York City, which in its harbor also has, has a few dozen islands, in fact, and has, has used them over its history in much the same way as, as Boston has. Uh, as landfills, as quarantine hospitals, and nowadays as as a recreation area. It's funny. I was scrambling to finish your book over the weekend, and I was I, I was in New York City over the weekend, and I was reading the epilogue of your book on the train as the train went through Pelham Bay and past Pelham Island. So I thought it was really an appropriate oh, oh, place <laughs> to be reading that. Because uh, you, you did draw some parallels between New York Harbor and its islands and, and Boston, which I just happened to stumble across at the perfect moment. Yeah. Also, another example would be Baltimore, which had two islands or three in, in its harbor where they've connected these islands into one. It was, it used to be Hart Island and Miller Island. Now it's Hart Miller Island and it's a state park. This is very much the arc that, uh, that the Boston Harbor Islands went through from work to play, so to say. It's good to know that we can use the Harbor Islands to talk a little bit more generally about what you call urban islands. So what, what did you mean by that specific turn of phrase that the Boston Harbor Islands were urban islands? 
Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm not the only one to come up with the term. <laughs> I thought I was the one, but uh, then I kept reading and realized other people had, have had the same idea. <laughs> Some of them before me. So. But I think it plays, on the one hand, on, on this traditional imagery of islands that as somehow isolated, remote places. And contrast this imagery with uh, its opposite, the urban or the city. Well, I, I thought it was interesting you're pointing out how remote or apart from the city um, the, the Harbor Islands seem when the Harbor, many of the Harbor Islands are closer to the State House Dome than some of the outlying neighborhoods. Like where I live here in Hyde Park is quite a bit further from the Boston waterfront than a Spectacle Island or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. How did that sense of otherness begin? What caused people to think of the Harbor Islands as something separate from the city? This is, this is actually at the heart of my research. Like, how is it that we perceive islands as so different or as so apart when in, in geographical terms they're not? Mm-hmm. Of course, it has to do with the water expanse in the first place. Although, as I show in the beginning of my book, when I'm talking about the colonial period, it hasn't always been so. Right at the beginning when Boston starts in the 17th century, Water isn't so much understood as as a separation, or rather as a connection. Is it as simple as things like train travel making it easier to to travel on land than water for a lot of people? That's one of the reasons, definitely. And also, like in the case of Boston, the 19th century is also a time when uh, uh, when Bostonians start looking toward the mainland and not toward the harbor so much anymore. Boston as a port is still very important, but it's no longer the only place where the money comes from and where the economic activity is. And also Boston as a city starts to expand on the mainland explosively. So the harbor stops being so much of a focus and also the shipping traffic stops being the only way you can move about. Also, it, it probably has to do with the tradition of cultural imagination, how we imagine islands to be. And of course, it has to do with uh, the literature we read. And I think we'll get into that when we talk about Edward Rose Snow. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so just thinking about how people have imagined the islands at different times, in, in the first chapter, you use uh, Richard Mather, Cotton Mather's grandfather, as sort of a an example of the Puritan migration period. And he arrives into Boston Harbor on the heels of the great 1635 uh, New England hurricane. Mm-hmm. How would his experience as somebody who was coming to settle here have been different than either the Massachusetts people or even the early French or English or Portuguese fishermen who are doing seasonal visits to fishing camps in the, the islands? So starting with the Massachusetts people, it's actually interesting uh, how the way they use the islands then mirrors the 19th century ways the islands would be used, because they don't use them year-round. They use them seasonally as very much, they're very much fringe uses, really, because they use them as, as seasonal hunting camps. So they would use them for harvesting clams and marine animals. I think there are a few agricultural hamlets on, on several of the larger islands, but uh, those are in the immediate pre-contact period. So, uh, in the 10,000 years before that, uh, these islands are really very much the periphery of the world of the Native Amer- Americans that, that live there. 
As for the fishing colonies uh, from previous waves of European colonization, these are very much one-purpose uses. So, so the French and Portuguese would just come and establish fishing colonies and then expect to go back. But that's not what the English do. The English settlers, the Puritans who arrive in the, in, in the early 17th century, these are people who actually plan on settling here and beginning a new life. For them, the islands are resources that help support uh, their new settlements. They come into Boston Harbor and see the islands as places that can provide them with uh, wood for building, with stone and gravel, with uh, pasture for, for the cattle, and with agricultural land, because this original peninsula is really tiny. And there's almost no good agricultural land available. So in order to support a population, uh, the townspeople need to look around, and the mainland isn't really an option. The mainland, of course, was settled before the Puritans came, but uh, in the decades before Boston itself was settled, the diseases that uh, the previous settler waves brought into New England have almost wiped out the, the native population. So the mainland now starts overgrowing with uh, vegetation again, and seems like this really impenetrable and, and uninviting place where you can't move around and where you wouldn't want to go, really. So what you do is turn towards the water, towards the sea, and the islands are, are really easily accessible because the water is the connecting medium in this time. It was funny, your, your note that agriculture was very important on islands all up and down the North American coast. And you said, I think there were 11 different hog islands and almost as many cow and calf islands. In which fact, I had in fact there used to be two hog islands in Boston Harbor itself. Except you can't sell condos on an island named Hog Island. So now that's Spinnaker Island now, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How does that agricultural use very early on start to change the nature of the Harbor Islands? So first of all, you cut down the trees, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually the, the major change in the agricultural sense. So they would have been a mature forest when the Puritan fleet arrived? It's difficult to tell because there's, there definitely were trees, but uh, if on all the islands or if on some of them they've been cut, uh, there are definitely accounts of, of townspeople going out on the islands to, to, to harvest wood. So at least on some of the islands, uh, the trees have been preserved. But uh, after a few years of the Puritans, not anymore. Losing the tree cover exposes the islands to erosion. Of course, another factor that, that supports that uh, is the gravel harvesting. Some of the islands, like Deer Island, loses as much as 60 acres to erosion and gravel harvesting. So it actually slides uh, into the water and, in the case of Deer Island, into the main shipping channel, which of course is a problem. And, and Nix is made used to be actually a substantial island of, I think, 12 acres. And today, you know, it's, it's just a show. It's, it's only visible at low tide with a beacon on it. Was that being used as ship's ballast, or what was the gravel being used for at that point? The, the most important use would be, would be as, as ship's ballast. The ships that would come to Boston would, according to the current need, would either 
lose ballast and, and leave European stones in Boston, or, or take on ballast and either help themselves to it, or buy it from people who would basically start selling the islands for ship, ship ballasts. <laughs> I think that that's what happened on Spectacle, actually. Uh, people who never owned the island would go there illicitly, harvest gravel, and sell it to the ships. Well, that's an interesting point you raised, that at a, at a time, at least, the Harbor Islands, or most of the Harbor Islands, were seen as part of the, the commons. And we think about New England town commons as being sort of a, a grassy space in the middle of town. But in 1631, the, the Harbor Islands were common land. How, how did the islands end up becoming held in common, and then how were they divided between the different towns around Boston Harbor? Puritan settlers carried the idea of commonly used land from their communities in, in old England, so to speak. And it was really governed by the, by the simple idea that uh, these islands had resources that everyone in Boston needed. And since they understood themselves as a, a close-knit community, which acted together, uh, which had this idea of, of not every individual for himself, but uh, them acting as a body, then the idea of a calm land or calm pasture uh, wasn't really foreign to them. Thanks for pointing that out. I always think it's funny. That there's a certain school of thought here in the States that the early settlers, early English settlers, were sort of this proto-libertarian capitalist, every man for himself, hewing settlement out of the wilderness with my own two hands. And at least here in New England, that, that was very much not the pattern. So I, it's good to be reminded of that every so often. You also you pointed out in the book that partly because of the the constraints of being on a small peninsula, like you said, while other towns in the Bay Colony stay agricultural for a long time, Boston pretty quickly pivots to being an important center for merchants and commerce, and then for a long time is the sort of the premier English port in North America. And during this period, they do something called warfing out. So can you explain what that means and, and sort of how it changed the, the shape of the city? Oh, this is my favorite part, really. Boston is uh, a really bad place for an agricultural colony. The original Shawmut Peninsula is really small and also quite marshy. So you can't really farm it very well. And Later on, uh, people would solve this by farming the mainland. But in, in these early days, that's not much, much of an option. So what the Puritans needs do is they turn to the sea and start this history of, of Boston as an important port, really, and as the principal port of the colonies. To accommodate the shipping, they uh, start transforming and, and uh, tweaking and changing the harbor uh, to, to suit these shipping needs which in this period are fairly undemanding or fairly simple because uh, the ships aren't so big. It's so simple as that. But still, you need places for the ships to berth. Uh, so Boston merchants uh, start building these wharves. The most impressive of them, which still stands today, although it's not as impressive as it used to be, is Long Wharf. Had you come to Boston in the... 18th century, you would have been much more in awe of Long Wharf than you, you would be today. Because 
Boston throughout its history continued to, to expand into the harbor. Actually, Long Wharf would extend one-third of a mile into the harbor. This was the gateway to Boston. So we have this very impressive gateway to Boston in, in Long Wharf facing the harbor. Can you contrast that to what somebody would have seen if they were coming to Boston by land in the same period, uh, to, to Boston Neck? If Long Wharf or, or Boston Harbor itself is really the front gate to Boston, then uh, coming from the other side, from the mainland, would be basically going through the back door. You can't imagine the entrance to Boston like or the connection to, of Boston to the mainland as it is now, because Boston's still a peninsula in a way, but uh, it's a pretty sturdy one. Hmm. Uh, but this wasn't the case in the 17th century, so it was only connected to the mainland through this through this very narrow stretch of land called Boston Neck. So, so this neck was also so marshy, and it, it would flood during storms. So it was it was really an unpleasant way of of, of getting into Boston, and uh, during storms or high tides, it could be life threatening. It wasn't exactly the, the most representative part of town located there. So you would, you would pass some cow pastures known today as Boston Common. There was also the, I think the town gallows. Yeah. So there's this very pronounced orientation toward the harbor. That's, that's the part of town that really matters. Well, it's interesting that you mention some of the sort of secondary uses along Boston Neck, like using it for the, the gallows, because Boston's always been looking for places to put undesirable institutions. So through a lot of the 18th century, Boston Neck and the West End and Beacon Hill were pretty undeveloped pasturage, uh, rope walks. And then you would have things like the almshouse, the jail, the workhouse. But eventually, Boston's going to try to grow into its Beacon Hill and West End what does the town do with some of those institutions as the town grows up in the late 18th and especially into the, the 19th century? First, they're pushed around the Boston Peninsula. Which is growing at that point. That's, we've already started some landfill around the turn of the, the 19th century, right? With the, the mill pond and the town cove. Yeah, that's right. Although the town dog is really quite small. Today, it's next to Quincy Market. The, the mill pond, which is located between the north and the west end, is slightly larger, but still it's not uh, so huge compared to the later development. Yes, Boston is growing, but the spatial footprint is not growing as fast as the population. The population outgrows the peninsula, so to speak. So these, these undesirable institutions and businesses are first pushed to the corners of the peninsula that are still sort of empty. In the 19th century, I think in the beginning of the 19th century, they get pushed to South Boston, which uh, is a new neighborhood by the time, built partly on a peninsula called Dorchester Neck, and on what used to be a real large expanse of tidal flats. I think South Boston is the part of town where the existing land and the mainland are about 50-50. The amount of land making in Boston has, uh, has been 
mind blowing all over its history. Really, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People think of the Back Bay. It's a, but the Back Bay is just one of many land making projects from East Boston to Southie to the flats of Beacon Hill. We love to make make new land here. So, what are some of those institutions that are getting relocated into to South Boston and and out of the core as we start into the the late eighteenth or early nineteenth century? So it's mostly public institutions for people who are socially outcast, institutions for the poor, such as almshouses, workhouses, and prisons of, of various kinds for juvenile delinquents. It's also the quarantine hospital, which is also one of the institutions that's been pushed around in, in, in Boston's urban space. It starts on one of the one of the hills that Boston used to have and no longer has. This this particular one was on Fort Hill. Then Boston then started using the Hub Islands for this purpose. So the first unofficial quarantine is uh, Apple Island. And if that sounds unfamiliar, then it's because the island no longer exists. It's uh, it's now under Logan Airport. One of several that are now one of under Logan yes, Airport. Yes, one of, I think, three. The largest of them is, is what was Governor's Island. What does this effort to move some of the city's institutions that serve the poor or the indigent or people who were at the time considered insane to the Harbor Islands, what can that tell us about Boston's changing relationship with the Harbor Islands as we get into the, the mid-19th century? Boston in the 19th century is... On the one hand, a seaport, first and foremost. And also, on the other hand, uh, the economic activity is relocated to, to the manufacturing towns, such as Lowell. Of course, it ceases to be a community where agriculture plays any significant role. So the agricultural uses of the islands are no longer needed. To understand this, we need to, we need to, uh, Bear in mind then how much Boston grows during the 19th century, because this, of course, is the time of, of mass immigration. In 1810, Boston has 34,000 people. 80 years later, in 1890, it has half a million. That's mind-boggling. It is. And these people require space that the original Boston on the peninsula just doesn't have. So, so what this, this development brings about is also this, uh, stronger sense of, of a hierarchy of places. Like, that, a, that there are places in a city that are, uh, nice and, and good and healthy. In these places, you don't want the businesses that are maybe necessary for the functioning of the city, but are really unpleasant to be around. So, you're, you're looking for, for places to, to put these. These should be places which are somehow separated from the habitation. And in this case, the choice falls on the Hub Islands. What are some examples of nuisance industries? I think you called them in the book. What industries would be, they be looking to relocate onto the Harbor Islands at that time? It's actually not me who, who, who is calling them nuisances, but this is the official designation of uh, Boston's Board of Health. <laughs> I've, I can't tell you how many times I read these businesses being nuisances and unfit to... <laughs> so, 
so this is this is actually the official way they talk about them. It's businesses that uh, process waste and waste of all kinds, like garbage, also dead animals. Is the 19th century city is is uh, populated by numbers of animals that are probably unimaginable for us today, especially horses. That's just something I I don't think of when I picture life in Boston in the past. I think of the horse manure in the streets, but I don't think of the dead animals that somebody has to find a way to deal with. And a horse is a very large dead animal. Also, in sheer numbers, so in the 1880s, there would have been 14,000 horses in Boston. So one horse to every 26 people. But horses wouldn't have been the only livestock in the city. What other animals would people have been keeping? Surprisingly, also cows. was also several thousand. It's probably mostly in the outlying districts, to be fair. But still, these large animals aren't necessarily what we think about when we, when we think about the cityscape. Around that same time, 1881, you used as an example that there would have been between the human waste, which was its own major problem mm-hmm. to deal with, animal waste, other sorts of terrible materials, <laughs> 10 million cubic feet of waste, which sounds like a lot. I have no s- scope of what 10 million cubic feet of waste would look like. <laughs> what I used in the book to sort of help the readers and also myself imagine how much 10 million cubic feet is. Uh, so this collected refuse would have filled 113 Olympic-sized swimming pools. It's terrible to think of. And at this time, there was no sewage treatment yet. People had sewers, private or public sewers, but that sewage wasn't treated in any any way, was it? At first, no. So there also wasn't any centralized way to deal with it. So basically, everyone would build their own sewer. I used to be a tour guide, and as I would show people the back bay and explain some of the pressures that led to the filling of the back bay, and I tried to explain that Bostonians just had a habit of building a pipe that would connect to the nearest body of water and then forgetting about it. And whether it was the back bay, the harbor, the Charles River, the sewers could just go anywhere, and they would. Bostonians shouldn't be too hard on themselves. I mean, this was the common practice everywhere at the time. Every city that would have access to a water body or water course would do the same. So this would be the, the usual way of trying to get rid of the waste for it to be washed away with uh, with the river current or with the tide. By the mid-19th century, the combination of the exploding population in Boston, the, the wave of immigration and annexation, the population is growing. And then there are also changes to the landscape of Shawmut Peninsula that end up making the waste problem worse. So how did landfill worsen the sewage problem and and how did the city try to use more landfill to fix that? Boston, in a way, was the perfect location for uh, establishing a a seaport because it has this deep water harbor and also it's surrounded by really shallow water, which uh, is great for, for building wharfs. And for the growth of a large metropolis, it's uh, not the best place. So the land making, just as you say, it's caused huge problems for getting rid of the sewage because uh, it decreased 
the angle of, of the sewers, so the sewage would flow only reluctantly, so the sewers wouldn't empty into the shoreline as they should, and also the sewage would then settle on the tidal flats. You can imagine the... I don't have to go into this. Yeah, when when people ask, you know, oh, wouldn't you love to go back to the Victorian era or whatever their favorite time period is, all I have to do is imagine the smell of any city street in any city in the world to say, no thanks, I'll stay right here in the 21st century. Also, if you were in the 19th century, you'd probably... I mean, the smell not only would be worse, but uh, your perception of the smell would be different. Because just as today, our theory of how diseases spread is the germ theory. And the 19th century uh, believed that uh, diseases are, are caused by miasmas, poisonous vapors that uh, sort of hover in place of the foul air. So smell was was actually an indicator of disease. In this way, a serious problem that had to be dealt with. We start to see the city undertaking some big projects to try to clean up the sewage in particular and to, to try to control these smells, but it's not just a, a beautification process. It's seen as a, a means of public health, right? Exactly. What was the solution that Bostonians came up with to try to fix the sewage problem early on. Could you explain what the main drainage system was? Yeah, so, so it was, uh, I think, designed in the 1870s, and it was supposed to replace the maze of private sewers that didn't really work and, and caused this gross pollution. What, what the city of Boston would do is to build the system of huge sewage tunnels that uh, would uh, have two main branches. One is the north one that would empty into Shirley Gut, uh, which uh, used to separate Deer Island from the mainland until the 1930s. The south branch would go all the way to Columbia Point, where those of you who have been to the UMass Boston campus know that there's the sewage pumping station still standing. From uh, from the 19th century, so it's it's this Richardsonian Romanesque building that was this, this was built as part of this main drain system, pumping sewage over to Moon Island and and just pushing it down the harbor. After the sewage was pumped through City Point or uh, Shirley Gut, what became of it? What how was it being disposed of at that time? It was basically dumped into the harbor water expected to float away with the tide, which it sometimes did and sometimes didn't. And this this was, by the way, also uh, the way of disposing of much, much of the refuse and garbage. I mean, some of it would be used as fill in Boston, like the town dock and the mill ponds were largely filled with refuse. And even East Boston, in the early 20th century, was still partly built on household ashes and, and, and stuff like that. So garbage is a proven film material in Boston. One of the problems with Boston's method of dealing with sewage and garbage and just dumping it onto the outgoing tides is that a few hours later, the outgoing tides become the incoming tides and anything you dumped has a habit of, of coming back a few hours later. Can you just describe what the waste coming back on the tides 
what the effect on seaside communities around Boston would have been and what effect it might have had even on Boston's very important shipping interests? Of course. I mean, the, the, the seaside communities did what you would expect them to do. There is complaint that uh, this, is, this, is, this is impossible because it washes, washes up on their beaches. Also, one of the ways to deal with refuse was to send it out on garbage boats and dump it uh, several miles away from Boston on, on the open water. But the garbage boat masters did what they, they just didn't bother to go any further than they than, than they had to. So they they dumped the refuse what one two miles beyond Deer Island, so it would wash back, and also they they dumped it in in the newly dredged shipping channel. Which probably wasn't too much of a danger to shipping as such. Because it was mostly, mostly organic garbage, but uh, still. At least an annoyance, especially when somebody had spent very good money to have that channel dredged. Going back to, to an earlier topic we, we mentioned briefly, we talked about the problem of dealing with animals, both animal waste and then as livestock especially horses died in the city how that was dealt with and you introduced i'm just scanning my notes here i believe his name was nahum ward as a an entrepreneur who took this on as as a business right yeah that's right probably all 19th century cities needed a company like that as you mentioned like horses are very large animals and leave a very large corpse that needs to be dealt with in some way uh, and in boston the company that specialized on this uh, was owned by, by Nahum Ward, who first started a business in West Roxbury. But, uh, like I said, it's businesses of this sort uh, were more and more unwelcome in the city proper. So in the 1850s, he relocated the business to Spectacle Island. And so if a horse died in the city, then Either the owner or, or the policeman who, who found the corpse would, would telephone the company and they would come and collect the animal, ferry it over to spectacle and actually in, in several steps almost completely recycle it. So what are some of the products that could be recovered from a dead horse? I wouldn't imagine that you can do so much with, with, a, with a dead horse, but <laughs> so first of all, they would, they would cut off the mane and, and the tail. And use this for stuffing furniture, basically. Then the hide or the, the skin of the horse would uh, would would be used as well for for making furniture, for the sofas, for for shoes. The meat would be processed into dog food and the bones too. And out of the hooves, they would make glue. What part of that process made it an offensive industry or a nuisance industry? And led Ward to move his business out to Spectacle Island. The horses would be first would be rendered, so the hide would be rendered, and this is an incredibly smelly process. And also the uh, like cooking of the meat and the bones. Mm. And according to the records of Boston Board of, Board of Health, the, the Ward company also didn't really adhere to sanitation regulations. So this was basically a business that uh, created an incredible stench and 
in the 19th century city that we've talked about at length just couldn't be tolerated near habitations. Why was Spectacle Island considered such a perfect place to locate a business like the Ward Company? Well, first of all, it had no constituency. When the company came on the island, there's one family as tenants who would farm the island, but I believe they relocated after the company came there. And the only people who, who lived on the island were employees of, of the company. And also, this goes back to actually the main theme of the book, like the largely imagined separation of, of the island from the mainland. So the water at this point seems really like like a separation, like an interval between the habitations and this smelly nuisance. Whereas earlier in the Puritan period, the water was seen as a, a connection. Exactly. Now it's seen as a... Yeah. So, so there's, this, there's this major shift that's happening. You describe the harbor during this period as, as being seen as Boston's ultimate sink. Uh, what, what does that imply for you? In a way, it receives all that's undesirable or unwanted in the city proper. So the harbor functions as waste receptacle, basically. And we've talked about this. The sewage, the, the refuse get all dumped into the harbor. The harbor islands are places where uh, the sewage pumping station is located. The first, the first sewage treatment plant uh, is, is located on Moon Island. And the tanks are, are actually still there. I think they're used as the Boston Police Department's firing range. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting reuse of, of old infrastructure. It is. And then their spectacle, which gets regarded as this waste hub for Boston. Because, because the, the Ward factories over, over decades joined there by other waste processing businesses. What, what other businesses are located out there? At the start of the 20th century, I, th- I believe uh, 1903, a garbage reduction plant. So this is, this is a waste processing business that uh, extracts grease from garbage by, by heating it. Relocates the spectacle from, 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 from Columbia Point. You point out that for these businesses like the, the waste reduction that had to be I mean, just foul. If I think about everything, that goes into a garbage dump and then heating that to these high temperatures to try to extract grease, just foul smell. You point out that the border between land and water and shore and islands looks very black and white on a map, but in reality, it's permeable and the smells are not contained by a shoreline. So as we look at these offensive industries being concentrated on the Harbor Islands, can we read anything into that about who had political power in Boston and what constituencies were and weren't being served by locating the offensive industries out in the Harbor Islands? I thought about that. At first sight, this looks like a clear case of environmental injustice, that you'd probably locate these near to immigrant communities or people that the governing class considers in some way inferior. And this is Partly the case because uh, the community that uh, was mostly in the way of the smells from Spectacle Island is South Boston, which at this point is a immigrant, largely Irish community. But on the other hand, 
the first two decades, you, you just have the board company plant uh, on the island. But uh, at the time when uh, the other companies start coming, this, this garbage reduction plant and another factory that manufactures glue from fish heads and like uh, <laughs> real businesses you wouldn't want to be around. Ugh. All this is happening at a time when the Irish uh, start gaining an influence in the city hall. And when a Irish mayor gets elected, largely based on South Boston constituency. So I believe it has less to do with environmental injustice than with the notion that the Harbour Islands are really the ultimate fringe. That no one can complain that when these businesses are located there, because this is the best we can do. And part of that's this perception that there are no people there. But as you point out, because of the industries on Spectacle Island, a, a small community starts to grow up on the island. Um, I guess it must have been in the late 19th or maybe early 20th century. How did the residents of Spectacle Island see their island as compared to what somebody in downtown Boston might have seen? Oh, this is such an interesting part of the story because the community starts with, with the people working for the Walt Company in the 1850s. And as the next businesses come, and especially as the garbage reduction plant comes, the community grows to some 150 people. That's the highest number. I talked to a lady who used to spend her childhood holidays on the island because her, her grandparents worked for the garbage plant. And also a couple of, of the one-time residents have written memoirs, notes about their time on spectacle. It's extremely interesting to read because they make a point in saying how nice a place it in fact was for them. <laughs> for them, it was home. They even contrasted it favorably to, to the city. Because <laughs> what they say is, oh, it was so nice and green, and we could go swimming, and we lived on an island, so when we, when we went to the city, we would be envied by all. <laughs> they would turn this around as the island life being something that's extraordinary and exciting. Of course, these are not upper-class people. This community is very much working class and also middle-class people who, during the, during the Depression, are forced to take any job. This place, looking from the inside, probably isn't as bad as when looking from the outside. And looking from the outside... By the, I guess the 1920s, the, the Ward plant had closed. And I think from that point on, it was until almost 1960, just exclusively used as a, a garbage dump. Yeah, so the, so the Ward plant closed sometime in the 1910s, I believe. And the garbage reduction plant, which was the largest factory on the island and also the largest employer, closed in 1935. So from then on until 59, it was basically a landfill. The garbage then wouldn't be processed in any way. It would just be dumped on the island. It's interesting that someplace that from the outside looks terrible, this active landfill or garbage dump is seen by the residents very differently. And a great example of that, you include a copy in the book of a hand-drawn map by uh, Robert Wyatt of his island home. 
can you just describe that map a little bit and, and what it tells us about how the islanders themselves saw Spectacle Island? I'm so sorry that I can't show you any pictures because this map is just, it's a treasure, really. Robert Wyatt was, uh, was the son of the superintendent of, of the garbage plant. And he uh, had lived on the island until his, his 20s. He went to Boston, went to live in Boston in the 1940s. And in 2000, as an old man, he has drawn a map, like, from his recollection of what the, what, what Spectacle Island uh, looked like during his youth in 1930s, 40s. Mm-hmm. It's such a striking image because the map is extremely detailed. And it presents the island as a place where people live and as a place that is enlivened by human experience. So he, he tells you like where all the houses are and who lived in them. And then he points out where, where good swimming was and where they would fish from a pier and whose boat is, is moored where. Also, he would show you where the garbage fill is. So it's not just all green and nice. (laughs) (laughs) And also, it's probably the most accurate map of the island from that period, because I compared it to a map that, uh, at the same time, the city of Boston would have of Spectacle Island. And that map was from 1915, and of course, by the 1940s, it was completely outdated because of the garbage that was dumped on the island. And then they just increased its footprint by five acres by the time. Why would the city have, have used an inaccurate or an outdated map as their official map, do you think? I can't really know, but my guess is that the city just cared very little at this point. It seems to be a time when the city's very much turning away from the harbor and the harbor islands. The network of harbor forts was out of date by the, the end of World War One and abandoned, mostly abandoned soon after World War Two. The landfill, the garbage processing shuts down by, I think it was the 1950s. Yeah. A lot of sort of middle and upper class Bostonians are no longer in touch with the harbor after that point. So how, how does the city go from having you know, Long Wharf as this beautiful front door to Boston to seeing the harbor as more of the back gate. From the late 19th century, Boston's standing as a major seaport is basically in decline. New York is, from mid-19th century, the largest seaport on the East Coast. But Boston's uh, still the second. Then in, in the first years of the 20th century, uh, it just really goes downhill. So Boston's port is in decline. It's no longer as important for the city's economy as it used to be. And also, in the middle third of the 20th century, there are two major developments that uh, further reduce the number of people for whom the harbor is a workplace, who engage with it on a daily basis. Containerization. Instead of having... A sort of non-standard or loose freight that Steve Doors and Longshoremen would handle by hand. You would put it into these large shipping containers we know we know we know today, and this so this development starts only in the sixties. Also, 
the work processes in the harbor uh, become much more automatic. So you need uh, so machines basically take the take the uh, take over the labor of the people. So uh, you need less and less people. Even the fishing fleet is diminishing. So it's a time when not too many people actually know the harbor or who have been there. Also, in the 1950s, the construction of the central artery. That elevated highway that completely divorced Boston from its waterfront. Exactly. So it cuts right through downtown, basically isolating North End and the waterfront from the rest of the city. So it was extremely hard to go there and you couldn't even see the harbor. Around the same time, there's this, from a modern lens, disastrous redevelopment of the West End. So Boston starts looking at the Harbor Islands in the the 50s or the 1960s with a new eye for where to put people, I guess. So what what kind of problems were planners trying to solve that made them look at the Harbor Islands for, for housing? Boston in, in, in 1950s is a city that's on the brink of bankruptcy. Because between 1950 and 1960, Boston has lost 100,000 people to the suburbs. And of course, these people take their taxes with them. In, in the language of, of the time, this dilapidated or rundown urban core on its hands. It perceives itself as a city in crisis and, and tries to, and is looking for ways to solve this crisis. So one of, one of them is, is uh, urban renewal, which tries to make the central city more attractive for middle class and well to the residents. In places uh, such as the West End, it, it goes horribly wrong. Right. The, the West End, the planners had seen part of the project as what they called slum clearance, but then it was actually the loss of community, loss of housing. It, it was seen by the people who were cleared as losing their homes. And the nice thing about the Boston Harbor Islands is that, the, except for a handful of people, nobody called it their home at the time. One thing you wrote about the the attitudes toward the harbor is that for planners and politicians at that time, the most useful island was an island stripped of its islandness. What does that mean? At this point, city and state government are basically looking at integrating the harbor islands uh, into the city, mostly as uh, residential development. At this time, a useful island is an island that serves as a site for, for real estate development. As such, it needs to be connected to the mainland. So this is a time when not so much as pushing the islands away, as, as we've seen in the 19th century, Boston is trying to appropriate or incorporate them fully in, into its body and, and basically build a new community in the harbor. And what does it mean for a, an island to be stripped of islandness, and how, how does that make it more useful? Well, the key thing here is, is access, obviously. What the city planners are looking at is connecting the islands to the city through means such as, such as fill and, and causeways and bridges. And there's a few islands where this actually happened. Although for different reasons than, than real estate development, obviously. Long Island has, has been connected to, to the mainland by a bridge uh, until 
2014, which was torn down. Mm-hmm. Moon Island, Nut Island, Deer Island, all connected by causeways, and Thompson Island. Uh, there were there were plans to to connect it to Columbia Point by Phil and I believe he talked about this at length in in the episode devoted to the to the Expo seventy six. Yeah, if, if listeners want to go back and find that, that's episode two nineteen about what I consider just a a crazy plan to create a planned community in the harbor for a, a World's Fair for the bicentennial. It's fun to read about now, but I don't think it would have been fun to live in Boston at the time. I have to say, I, I don't agree completely on that one, but... <laughs> oh, tell me about that. The way you present it is, is uh, I believe you used the phrase, fever dream. <laughs> I think I did, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you present this as this ripped out of science fiction. And it does look like that to, to our contemporary eyes, but uh, I think that the expo, first of all, is... And you say that is is very much a child of its time, this sixties technological optimism that's like anything's possible and we can solve all problems if we try. On the other hand, it's also very much in, in the tradition of uh, other exhibitions of this kind. Because if you look at look at Brussels with the Atomium, look at Seattle, Montreal, look at Chicago. John Opie, the historian, call, called these these exhibitions fantasy worlds incarnate, and this is this oh, is yeah. this is yeah. So, like presenting this this blueprint for the future and being being really bombastic, it is their job to be futuristic. I think if it could have been done with federal dollars, it would have been a lot more easy to argue for here in Boston. But as a Boston resident, I'm glad I'm not uh, still paying the tax bill for that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear you. <laughs> the one thing that that didn't happen that Boston could really use is that you know, there was such a a large scale housing construction was proposed tied to the expo plan. So by not having the expo, we didn't have these you know enormous new housing developments on made made land. And today, housing the housing crisis is one of I think one of Boston's biggest threats for the future. That. To continue as a workable city, people have to be able to afford to live here. This was one of the things that this project was hoping to solve. So yeah, maybe it wasn't as useless as, as, <laughs> as, 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 the, as, the, as the designs would suggest to, to, to us today. <laughs> you know, I thought I had heard it all when it comes to the Boston Harbor Islands, but there, there was another project from about the same time as the Expo plan that I had never stumbled across. And that was this idea of a second airport located out around the Brewsters, the Brewster Islands. I guess, first of all, will you remind the the listener where the Brewster Islands are and then maybe describe what that plan to site an airport there would have looked like? Yeah, so the Brewsters are what you'd probably call the outer islands. So they're not exactly within the harbor. If you, if you consider the harbor to be like everything that lies landward between Deer Island and Point Ellerton, then they're, they're outside of that. These are the like very small rocky islands. I mean, these are just really rock outcrops and famously harsh seas and, and really rough weather around these islands. And it just shows how divorced from the reality of the harbor as a place, some of the plans in 1960s were. 
this is the idea that everything will just get bigger and, and larger and more in the future. It, it grows out of the idea that Logan Airport will reach capacity in the 1970s and that Boston new, needs a second airport. When casting around about for, for, for a site for this airport, it's again the Harbor Islands that uh, seems to have all the space that's needed, and there's nothing there, so why not? The fact that that's also rough seas and deep water and it would cost billions <laughs> of dollars just doesn't enter the equation. So this is the project that I think is really just mind-boggling. But for somebody like Ralph Sirianni, who was a state rep for the town of Winthrop, where these new jets are coming on close approach right over people's rooftops all day long, moving that jet traffic someplace else probably sounded like a great idea. And if, who cares if it's possible? Yeah, of course. I mean, there were good reasons for that. It just wasn't the right solution, probably. Well, one thing, although we didn't have a new airport or an expo or even the new housing that had been envisioned, this sort of optimistic period of planning in the, the 60s and going into the 70s does result in sort of a new interest in the Harbor Islands for recreation. But that wasn't the, the first time. I was a little surprised to read that there had been a, an earlier golden age of Harbor Island recreation in the 19th century. What sorts of pursuits could people find out in the Harbor Islands then? In the 19th century, Boston Harbor is... Uh first and foremost used for the purposes of the seaport, and also as this uh, ultimate sink, as, as this place where all the waste goes. Surprisingly, it starts to be used as a recreational area, in a way, for Bostonians. As I mentioned, 19th century is a time when Boston becomes really this uh, large, congested metropolis with all the all the problems that the large cities have. So people who can afford it sort of seek, a, we could say, refuge or, or escape from the city for a while, for a few days, for a few hours. So some of them, the well-to-do, let's say, would discover islands along the, the Atlantic coast or places like Marblehead, this romantic fishing village. Others would... would uh, just go boating around Boston Harbor. Along the shore, you'd have places who, who that would cater to these day trippers. So there would be there would be restaurants and, and hotels that would offer clam bakes and also like music halls, monkey cages, Punch and Judy shows, shooting alleys, all all kinds of amusements. Also, the islands are places where you would go. For a picnic, interestingly enough, in mid-century, Spectacle Island would be one of these places so before the horse rendering factory came. Well, interestingly, after the heyday of the sort of nuisance industries in the Harbor Islands, Boston starts to rediscover the Harbor Islands as a destination for pleasure. And although it almost pains me to say so, after reading your book, I got a lot more of an appreciation for the role of one Mr. Edward Rose Snow in, in promoting that vision. Um, can you can you introduce Mr. Snow if, why, if the listener isn't familiar? <laughs> well, I guess I have spent so much time debunking myths that he presented as fact. <laughs> in, uh, 
that I, I, I'm almost resentful that he's often referred to as the sort of the, the preeminent historian of the Boston Harbor Islands when he, he just made stuff up so often or embellished existing stories to the point where they're almost unrecognizable. But he w- was a huge driving force behind rediscovering and then protecting the Harbor Islands. So how did he come to occupy that, that role in Boston? Yeah, first of all, I'm, I'm with you on the, on the, uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't call him a historian. But, uh, well, that, that's what I finally realized that he was a storyteller, but he's presented in the Boston area often as a historian. And he, then you, you read one of his stories, you read about the pirate Rachel Wall, and then you dig into primary sources and other writers and you realize that there was never a charge of piracy against Rachel Wall. She was hung as a highway robber, which is a fascinating story in itself. But there's no pirates involved. Or there's the Lady in Black, which I couldn't find anywhere, literally, until in the 1930s, Mr. Snow comes along. So yeah, let's 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 get into him. <laughs> <laughs> so so who is who is Edward Rose Snow, first of all, and how is he introducing Boston to the islands on their back door? Edward Rose Snow is actually originally a school teacher. He, he comes from Winthrop, but the, the school teacher days are over quickly because he devotes his life to his basically lifelong passion. And that's, uh, writing and lecturing about, about, uh, the history of the Atlantic coast and of the Boston Harbor Islands in particular. His books, uh, they have these, these sensational titles like, Piracy, mutiny, and murder, and secrets of the North Atlantic coast. He ascends to be really this popular figure in the Boston area. So he has his own radio show. He does tours of the harbor in the 60s and 70s. Every Sunday, uh, he would give a boat tour of, of the Harbor Islands and, and point out places of interest and go to George's Island and tell the story of the Lady in Black. Uh, he has a newspaper column. He gives lectures. And probably most importantly, he, he publishes nearly a hundred books on the subject of the lore of New England coast and Boston Harbor. So he, he becomes this really authoritative voice on, on the subject of Boston Harbor Islands. I can't tell you how many people, especially people who are just a little bit older than me, say that their love of history comes from Edward Rose Snow. So I have to give him credit there. How did his myth-making or his approach to the Harbor Islands help sort of reset people's idea of the islands to this storied space of history and romance and not just another part of the city that could be used for sewage disposal or, or whatever other use? This is this is so interesting what he does really, and it's fascinating how you, you can trace his influence, like the way we perceive the islands today, to how how he talks about them. As we've probably established by now, the Boston Harbor Islands in the mid twentieth century are decidedly urban archipelago. They've received Boston's trash. They've received Boston's dead horses. Boston sewage, and in the 60s there are plans to build an airport on them, and actually one airport is already built on them. 
there are plans to integrate them into the city once and for all by, by building causeways and really connecting them to the city and, and making them residential neighborhoods. And Edward Rose Snow comes along and starts talking about these islands as if he were talking about Treasure Island. He uses this imaginary of islands as places that are somehow extraordinary, that are remote, that are isolated and where, where you go and have adventure. And he extends this image. I mean, we, we all know this, like from Robinson Crusoe, from Treasure Island. And he extends this to these islands that are, in fact, really mundane, really, really, really ordinary. That because he's so influential and because he's basically everywhere, he, he manages to sort of change the mindset, change the way how they think about the islands. He manages to find, like, an exciting story for each and every of them. Like, on Nix's Maid, there's a pirate story. On Lovell's Island, there's a shipwreck, and there's those gold pieces being found from an old shipwreck. And, of course, Boston Life, don't get me started on that. There's one fearsome storm after another. I mean, even spectacle. Even the garbage dump and horse rendery has a place of romance and history. Yeah, because, I mean, spectacle must have been a real challenge for him. So he goes to spectacle in his book and talks to uh, a fisherman who lives on the island and who he calls Portuguese Joe, whose name probably was uh, José Safarino. And he might have been part of the community of Portuguese fishermen who lived in, in, in Boston Harbor. So he talks to this person and he, he casts him in this role of, of, of this wise man who spins like, the, the, the island lore and the wisdom of the ages. So he, he manages to, to transform even this unromantic island into something that's extraordinary. And in no small part, thanks to his influence, the state and the city begin to see the Harbor Islands as something worth protecting. So how did Edward Rose Snow's influence, cultural influence around Boston, combine with the sort of growing environmental awareness of the late 60s or the early 70s to lead to the creation of a, a state park and eventually a national park in the Harbor Islands? Edward Rose Snow is extremely important for this, but he can't take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> because at this time in the 1960s, there are also tendencies uh, on the state level to make Boston Harbor and the Boston Harbor Islands a recreational area for Boston. Because this is also a time when, when recreation is discovered as uh, not only a substantial need of the population, because this is a popula population that is perceived at the time as uh, having more means and more leisure time than any generation before them. And also uh, as an economic asset that would uh, draw people to Massachusetts to spend their holiday. So there's a growing sense in that uh, Boston Harbor should be should be developed for creation. And spearheading this movement is Joe Moakley, who we've talked about in the Expo episode, and of course, uh, Ted Kennedy, who is then, 20 years later, one of the people who are credited with uh, making the National Park happen. On the one hand, 
there's this basic tendency to see the Harbour Islands as a potential recreational area for Boston. Then there's Edward Rose Snow, who sells them to, to the people as basically historic places that are valuable in their own right. And that's, that's also important because he doesn't see the, the islands as Boston's appendages. He sees them as places that are apart from Boston and that have their own exciting histories. Even though not strictly speaking true, but still. On the probably third hand, there's uh, the beginning environmental movement. We probably all know the, the term environmental decade, which uh, is used to refer to the 1970s, where most of the groundbreaking environmental legislation is happening. So all these things converge into a new perception of the Boston Harbor Islands as places uh, that are both historically valuable and also nature or environment that's worth preserving. I know you're short on time, but I wonder, as Boston began to see the Harbor Islands as something worth preserving and as a, as a destination for recreation, there were two big problems that still had to be solved to both to protect the environment and to make the Harbor Islands an enjoyable environment for humans. And that was Boston's continuing sewage problem and then the open landfill on, on Spectacle Island. So in the few minutes we, we have left, I wonder if you can tell us how how Boston eventually solved, or if you would call it solved, those two critical environmental problems. These, these two things you refer to are actually the two largest public projects that ever happened in Boston, and most people in your audience will be familiar with. And so the, so the first one is the Boston Harbor cleanup. And second of all, the Big Dig. In the case of the Boston Harbor cleanup, it's, uh, I think, quite obvious uh, why this is important, because it's hard to have a recreational area uh, that's at the same time America's dirtiest harbor, as Boston Harbor, unfortunately, has been called. Right. In the presidential campaign between uh, George H.W. H. Bush and Michael Dukakis, Bush scored some very important political points by going out into Boston Harbor and, and calling this a harbor of shame. If anyone wanted to have a, a recreational area or use the Boston Harbor as for recreation, then something had to be done about this. So I, I would definitely call it a success because if you believe the water quality reports, it's usually safe to bathe in the harbor. I have personally been swimming exactly. in Boston Harbor. And you probably wouldn't have 30 years ago. Yeah. No. Oh, no. Yeah, the, the most visible evidence of, of this project is the sewage treatment plant on, on Deer Island with these egg-shaped digesters. There's no way to process sewage that has zero byproducts. So n now, in 2021... What happens to the the final amount of waste that once upon a time would have just been dumped into the nearest creek, river, or harbor? The residue is, as it always was, released into the harbor. Although, in actual fact, these days not into the harbor, but uh, so the pipes become longer. The pipe is now nine miles long, so the residue from the treatment is is released into Massachusetts Bay. Where it's much less likely to float back on the next incoming tide than the sewage was a hundred years ago. And so on the other hand, 
you said the the big dig was also a factor in uh, the the harbor, and specifically with Spectacle Island. This is also a nice example of not only Boston influencing the islands, but also the islands uh, influencing Boston. Because, as you can imagine, the Big Dig generated like mountains of earth, of excavate, of, of, of dirt, basically. I think it was about 16 million cubic yards. So, so the project was, was desperately looking for places to put it. And uh, then Spectacle basically came as a godsend to them. Because, on the one hand, you have a project that uh, has this mountain of, of, of dirt and needs to put it somewhere. And on the other hand, you have a uncapped landfill that uh, you're looking uh, to use as a park. So when these two got married, you have spectacle as it looks now. But also, the dirt from Big Dig changed spectacle beyond recognition. So it, it raised the island to, to be the highest spot in the harbor as it is today. It completely obscures the landfill that's still underneath. So, so the island is today is shaped differently, is much larger, has different trees than, than it used to have. But on the other hand, if it weren't for Spectacle Islands, then Boston wouldn't look the way it, it does today, because uh, without the big dig, you wouldn't have this great connection to the waterfront you have. There wouldn't be uh, the, the Rose Cannon, the Greenway, that reconnects downtown to the historic waterfront. I'm sure the rediscovery of the Harbor Islands is helped by reconnecting the waterfront to the city, by, by burying the, the central Absolutely. artery. There's also this uh, Boston Harbor Islands Welcome Center right on this Greenway. If, if you walk down from State House towards the harbor, you can't miss it, really. It's, it's right there, and it advertises the islands. So the islands today are actually more present in the city than they have been in maybe 100 years. So now, 25 years, I guess, after the National Park was formed, and 15 years, I guess, after Spectacle Island opened up to the public. Yeah, how do... The park rangers and boat crews and the volunteers who are sort of this new generation of islanders, how, how do they present the islands to Boston or to the public today? Mm. Well, as a private citizen, I have to say very well. I've been on, on ranger tours and I really enjoy them. Also, I like the way how complex, how, how nuanced the narrative is that they're, they're telling because they're not trying to sell the Harbour Islands as a pristine wilderness or as uh, places of pirate treasure in, in the vein of, of uh, <laughs> snow. But, uh, right. It is, it is really a, a combination of all the roles that the islands uh, have had for Boston. So they present them as they've once been home or at least used by, by, by native people. Also as, as homes of, of islanders of later times. Then it's places on the edge, basically, like on the edge of continent and also on the edge of Boston, referring to this role as, as periphery that the islands have had. They also do look into these uh, less savory uses that we spend a long time talking about. So I think that the, the narrative of the National Park is, is uh, really inclusive of, of all of these roles that the islands have played. As you may know, the, the motto of the National Park is minutes away, worlds apart. 
Because, yeah, these islands are so close, but they're so different. What I'm trying to do in my book is, is really to say they're minutes away, but they're not really worlds apart. Closer connected to us Bostonians than we imagine most of the time. Now, I know, th- I know that you're basically out of time. Uh, th- before I let you go, if our listeners want to learn more about your book or to follow you and your work online, uh, is there a website or social media where they should look you up? I don't have a, my own website. I, I just have the university one. So um, feel free to use that. I enjoy talking to you. Well, Pavla, I very much enjoyed talking to you too. I, I appreciate your joining us. Yes. Today. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Pavla, the book Urban Archipelago, or the Boston Harbor Islands themselves, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 239. We'll have a link to Pavla's faculty page so you can learn more about her, as well as an affiliate link where you can support the show and local bookstores when you buy Urban Archipelago. I'll also link to a few related podcast episodes, like episode 219 about the Expo Plan, as well as episodes 147 and 213. 147 is about Rachel Wall, who Edward Rose Snow mischaracterized as a pirate. And 213 includes information about Snow's role in fabricating the 20th century rediscovery of Ben Franklin's first literary work. So you can see why I have less affection for the Boston Harbor historian than Pavla does. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Also, a good number of you listen on Spotify, and Spotify just added ratings. So if you want to give us a five-star rating in the Spotify app, that'd be terrific, too. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Thank you.